Joseph was a clever lad, genuinely complex, subtle, his father Jacob said. One day, Jacob was tapping his temple and looking at Joseph's older brother, Levi, and said to Levi, Levi, why didn't you learn to count at such a young age as Joseph? Joseph, well, he knew how to make small explosions in his brothers. All he had to do is kind of raise his eyebrows and pop his eyes out, and boy, could he get a rise out of them. That's why he never did that unless his father, Jacob, was present. Jacob, so proud of Joseph. One day, Jacob was just laughing so hard that the tears were rolling down his nose. He said, Judah, Judah, the wit of that boy drives you like a donkey. You know, he's going to be someone someday. But Joseph's 10 older brothers were pretty convinced he was the one that ratted out the oldest brother, Reuben, and told his father about Reuben's terrible sin. They didn't have proof of that, but uh, Joseph did have a habit of running off to father and tattling. And Reuben's sin, it was a terrible sin, don't get me wrong. He went into the tent of uh, his father's concubine, Bilhah, and had a pretty intimate relationship with her, if you know what I mean. Now, the result of that was really kind of embarrassing. I mean, Bilhah happened to be the mother of Reuben's half-brothers, Dan and Naphtali, so that was kind of weird. And she was uh, also the handmaid of Rachel, who happened to be Jacob's favorite wife who happened to also be the mother of Joseph and who happened to be the mother of Joseph's younger brother, Benjamin. She died in childbirth, giving birth to Benjamin. Yeah, it was, it was pretty sordid. It was pretty bad. And Reuben took quite a drubbing for that. But Joseph, Joseph was given a coat. And not just any coat. It was an ornate coat, long sleeves. The kind of coat that royalty wears. Jacob had his reasons for favoring Joseph. Like I said, he was the first son of his beloved wife, Rachel. Man, he loved her. Jacob struggled, however, with love. And that's because of his own family situation. You see, he grew up in a home where his father Isaac loved his twin barely older brother Esau, loved him more than Jacob, and there was just nothing Jacob could ever seem to do to earn his father's love. So he stole his brother's birthright. That's right. He dressed up like Esau and went in front of his blind father and fooled him. Of course, he had the help of his mother, Rebekah. And then when it was all over, Rebekah said, you've got to head north to Haran Stay with my brother Laban, your uncle, and stay there till Esau is over his fierce anger, which, by the way, took years. It was there in Haran that he met Rachel and just fell in love with her, and she loved him. But things got kind of complicated on the night that their marriage would be consummated physically. His uh, father-in-law switched out Leah, the older sister, for Rachel, and so... There in the dark tent, 
Jacob thought he had Rachel in his arms, but he actually had Leah. When he woke up the next morning, you could hear a scream throughout all the tents of Laban. Why did you do this to me? Well, Laban tried to say, it's our culture. You cannot marry off the younger before the older. So now that you have the older, she's been married first. You can have Rachel. You can imagine the complications that went with that. Anyway, back to our story. Uh, Joseph was also a dreamer. But he never kept his dreams private. <laughs> He'd love to talk about his dreams. He'd put on his beautiful ornate coat and kind of raise his arms in the air. He'd say, brothers, I've, I've, I've had a dream. Lo, we were out in the fields binding up our sheaves when suddenly my sheaf stood up and your sheaves bowed to mine. His brothers thought sheaves bowing like human beings? When did the little Lord ever cut his own sheaf in the field anyway? He had another dream. Brothers, I, I, I've had another dream. I dreamed that the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars bowed to me. <clears throat> Jacob cleared his throat with a frown on his face. Uh, Joseph, that dream's different than the last one. Are you saying your mother and I are the sun and the moon that bow in front of you? Nobody ever quite knew what to make of Joseph's dreams. Very strange. Uh, one day, while Jacob was sojourning in the valley of Hebron, he called Joseph over and he said, Joseph, I, I want you to go check on your brothers and check on the flocks and bring me back a report. Go safely, my son. And he kissed him on the forehead. And when he kissed him on the forehead, he, he noticed that while well, Joseph was at his same level, this 17-year-old was now as tall as his own dad. Seven days later, the 10 older brothers came back to the Valley of Hebron. They swore to Jacob they had not seen Joseph. In the month that they were gone, they hadn't seen Joseph at all. But they did find this coat torn in three pieces, drenched in now dried blood. It looked like Joseph's coat. Father, could, could this be Joseph's coat? Jacob looked at the ribbon cloth. He said, oh, my Joseph, my Joseph. He took his hand and he used the flat of his hand to try to smooth what was left of the tattered coat. My Joseph, my Joseph has been, has been attacked by lions, been torn to pieces. He threw dust in the air. He ripped his robe. He sat down, burlap on his loins, and he mourned and was inconsolable. While Jacob was mourning, Joseph was walking in the midst of camels in the middle of a caravan. Uh, merchants who sold gum and balm and myrrh and human slaves. They were uh, taking the southeast route along the great sea. They went past Gaza and then they cut across the north of Sinai and then went into Goshen and into Egypt. They had bought uh, Joseph for 20 shekels, a reasonable price for such a sleek young man. And though he was manacled in chains, both the neck and the ankle, 
They made sure they fed him well. Though his feet were bleeding, they kept him healthy because they knew he would fetch a good price. You know, it hadn't been too many days before that Joseph was happy. He was in search of his brothers and the flocks when he came to the crest of the hill and looked down and there like a vision were the flocks and were his brothers. Hey, brothers, it's me. It's, it's Joseph. I'm here. As he went down the slope of the hill, he broke into a gentle kind of trot. The brothers huddled together. Natalie yelled out, the dreamer. Joseph was still a little too far away to hear clearly, but it almost sounded as though Nathalie had spat the words. His mouth seemed kind of screwed up. Dan yelled out, let's see what becomes of his dreams. And Joseph slowed down. Suddenly two, then three, and then five brothers broke from the rest, began to run toward Joseph, shouting. Joseph found himself paralyzed. He couldn't move. Trying, he couldn't move. It felt like a strange dream. What was happening? Well, what were they going to do? Soon all ten were running at him, shouting. They grabbed him. They whirled him around and tore his coat off. One of them punched him to the side of the head, and he could tell by the blow and its intensity, his pain, they were serious. Another punched him in the small of the back. He crumpled to the ground. He grabbed him by his ankles and dragged him over the rocks and over the dirt until they finally dragged him over a hole and let him go, and he fell down and down into an echoing place. All he could barely remember was looking up and making out a little bit of a circle of a light. The heads of his brothers looking down cut out all the rest of the sunlight. And the words that accompanied Joseph into that cistern, that echoed in his mind over and over again. I'm in a cistern. I'm not dead. I'm in a cistern. I'm not dead. Lord, be with me. Maybe you feel a little bit of what Joseph was going through. You know, what I mean by that is um, maybe you feel pummeled, beat up by life. COVID, politics, economy, loss of friendship, loss of love, loss of people, hurt. And maybe you feel forgotten. Maybe right now you're feeling forsaken. And you wonder, where is God in all of this? And perhaps you've even had some moments where things have gotten just so discouraging. You've been so filled with despair that you've thought to yourself, you know, if God really is in charge of my life, he's pretty incompetent. Yeah, I realize that when things are going well, that sounds blasphemous. But when you're pressed, when you're squeezed, when you've lost love, there are times when you wonder, if God really knows what he's doing. Maybe you feel that way. Maybe you know somebody who feels that way. 
I don't want to say what I'm going to say next and make it sound light or trite. But it is true. And what is true is this, that when God seems the most absent, he is the most present. And when he seems nowhere, as the old saying goes, he's now here. He's everywhere. And the question is, do you believe it? Do I believe it? Especially when you feel like you've been thrown into the cistern and everybody and everything seems to be against you. I don't think Joseph knew where God was. But I know one thing for sure. He was very aware of the prevalence and the presence of sin. I mean, Jacob's family is like a volcano. Uh, pressure had been building and building and building, and it finally exploded, and it just happened that Joseph received the, the brunt of that explosion. I don't know what you know about Jacob's family, but uh, my goodness, I think every form of sin that there can be was in or orbited around his family. Just go back and start reading Genesis 25 through about chapter 45. You'll be astounded by the dysfunction of that family. Let me tell you a little bit about it. I mean, consider the fact that Joseph had three stepmothers, had 10 older stepbrothers, had a stepsister, had a father who is passive, struggled to know how to love, had a mother he dearly loved who died, and a baby brother. If you go back and read, like I did, you can come up with kind of a list of sins that plagued that family. I wrote them down. For instance, lying and deception. Stealing. Hatred. Did, did I say lying and deception? Jealousy. Abuse. Idolatry. Polygamy. Violence. Rape. Murder. Prostitution, betrayal, denial, rejection, pride, slavery, ridicule, incest, blackmail. Did I say lying and deception? You get the picture. It's almost as though Jacob's family was a microcosm of sinful humanity. I mean, I don't know what else you could add to the list that didn't exist in some form or fashion within that large family context. And yet God reaches down in all of that mess and pulls Joseph out of the moral morass and uses Joseph to become a savior for his family and a savior for his world. And really, if you think about it, a savior for you and me as well. How did God do that? God's good and powerful presence did that. You may not see it at first, but God's good and powerful presence is all over this story. Just like it is all over your life right now. Whether things are going well or you feel like you've been lost in the pit 
discouragement and despair, of loneliness and forsakenness. God's hand is all over your life. Put it another way, we could say this. We could say that despite the evil which may surround your life right now or my life, God is able to bring about his purpose. Think about that for yourself for a moment. And no matter what you're going through right now, the fact is God is able. In your current situation, to bring about his amazing purpose. But before we dig into that, we got to come to terms with something. We got to come to terms with why we've been given the word of God. We've got to come to terms with the meaning of these true stories in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. They're not primarily given to us so that we can draw out principles or steps for better living or for success or for leadership or for an improved marriage. Now, don't get me wrong. You can go to the Word of God and you can pull a lot of wisdom out for daily life and relationships and business and emotions and and all kinds of things. I'm not saying it's not there. But what I am saying is this, that primarily the stories of the Bible, the Word of God has been given to remind us and to show us how God has broken into sinful humanity in order to rescue us out because if he does not do that there is no way that we are ever going to get out of it ourselves so it is a story of God coming to us who are undeserving and lifting us out There are two truths here. The first truth is this. The truth is our awful circumstances come from being sinners who live in a sinful world. Secondly, the grace of God is that he would enter our sinful world and use our circumstances to rescue us. That's why it's so important that we come to grips with this reality that God's word is really his story of how he has come to us undeserving as we are and rescuing us. If you don't see it that way, what ends up happening is you'll begin to think of God as being unfair and unjust and you'll blame him for your circumstances. That's why you've got to look at the scriptures. You've got to look at these stories not as a religion, not as these great principles, (laughs) but God breaking in from the outside to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. Joseph Joseph came to terms with that. I want to read to you uh, some things that Joseph says at the end of a story, And, and that's because most of you know the end of the story. So it's not like I'm giving it away because what we've got to do the next several weekends is unpack how he gets to that end so you can unpack how you can get to the same place. Look what Joseph said, Genesis chapter 45. He says, I am Joseph, he said to his brothers. Is my father still alive? But his brothers were speechless. 
they're stunned to realize that Joseph was standing there in front of them. Please come closer, he said to them. So they came closer. And he said again, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into slavery in Egypt. But don't be upset. And don't be angry with yourselves for selling me to this place. It was God. There it is. It was God who sent me here ahead of you to preserve your lives. This famine that has ravaged the land for two years will last five more years and there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. God has sent me ahead of you to keep you and your families alive and to preserve many survivors. So it was God who sent me here, not you. And he is the one who made me an advice to Pharaoh, the manager of his entire palace and the governor of all of Egypt. May I be so bold as to say to you that God's purpose in the universe is to break into this sinful world to rescue you. And may I be so bold as to say this, that is that his great purpose for your life and my life is that you become a savior to the world. You say, I don't know what you mean by that. I thought Jesus was the savior. He is the savior. That's capital S savior. Small s savior. We're like the lifeguards. We carry the hope. We carry this message of salvation. In that sense, we're like Paul who said in Colossians chapter one, I think it's about verse 26, that he shares in completing the sufferings of Christ. What he means by that is he's just simply saying, I continue to suffer as Christ suffered so that you might know Christ and might experience his salvation. So I guess what I'm really trying to say to you is, you don't need to go out and find your purpose. I can tell you what your purpose is. I can tell you what my purpose in life is. Is to go and make disciples who make disciples who make disciples. Is to go into this world here, near, far and let people know that God has broken into the world to pull us out of the pit of despair. To change and transform our lives. You say that why did you call this series, you know, Finding Purpose in Uncertainty? Because what we have to find is what we call our shape. We're going to explain what that means in an upcoming message in a couple of weekends. But God has shaped all of us uniquely to carry out his purpose. Until you find out how God has shaped you so uniquely, you don't really know how to carry out that purpose of being a savior, of being a rescuer in your family, in your neighborhood, where you work, where you play, where you go to school. So in a couple of weekends, we're going to all have a chance online and at our campuses to discover our shape. And we're going to have coaches ready to help you begin to use that shape in God's great purpose for your life and my life and for our life together as the global body of Christ here, near, and far who call ourselves Wooddale Church. I love what Paul said in Romans chapter 8. 
He said, and we know that God causes everything, even in the pit. God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God. He doesn't, you know, and you've probably heard this before. He's not saying that everything that happens in our life is good, but that God could take the worst circumstances. God could take what is meant for our destruction and our hurt by the evil one and by this evil world. He can actually use it to bring about our good. And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. For God knew his people in advance and he chose them to become like his son so that his son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And having chosen them, having chosen you, he called you, he called them to come to him. And having called you, he gave you the right standing with himself. Having given you the right standing, he's giving you, he's sharing with you and me his glory. It's pretty amazing, isn't it? What he's done for you, what he's done for me. And that he would invite us in this great rescue operation to be like a Joseph to our culture, a Joseph to our family, a Joseph to the world around us. But you know, before God could use Joseph, Joseph had to be broken. Joseph had to be rejected by his community before he could become a savior to his community. He had to be sold. He had to be beaten in order for him to return to his community, to be a savior to that community. Joseph sounds a lot like Jesus, doesn't he? You know, Jesus came and he was rejected. Jesus came and he was beaten. Jesus came and he was sold. But unlike Joseph, Jesus was crucified. And he gave his life for our salvation. If Jesus had not gone through all the things that he went through, we would not know eternal life. If Joseph had not gone through all the things that he went through, he would not have been able to save basically the world. If you and I don't go through the things that we go through, we'll never realize the extent to which God can use us. You know, in the old days, when they wanted to purify silver or gold, they would heat it up with really hot temperatures until finally that, that uh, gold or silver would become liquid and the impurities would rise to the top and the person would skim off the impurities and skim off the impurities and skim off the impurities. And they knew that it was finally pure. They knew they could let it harden when they could see their full reflection in the liquid ore. When the refiner could see his face, he knew it was ready. There is a sense that God allows and uses what the world intends for our hurt and our pain if we'll allow him to refine us, to bring out of us the image of his son. So we trust him and we surrender to him and we embrace this call, this dream 
to be a savior in the world that's around us. How about you this weekend? Maybe you're in a cistern. Maybe you're in a pit. Maybe you feel a lot of the things that Joseph must have felt. Can you surrender your situation to God? Can you say, Lord, I don't feel you, I don't sense you, but I'm going to by faith believe you're in this? I'm at the beginning, I'm not at the end. I don't know how it's going to turn out, but God, I know, I know you don't waste anything. I know you're not doing this to me. The world is doing this to me, or I've done it to myself, but God, I know you can turn it around and you can use it to bring Jesus out in my life. You don't approve, God, some of the things that happen, but you allow to conform, shape your image into me. Would you surrender to that? Would you be willing to yield to that? I believe that if you do, you'll begin to see how God is shaping you to be a world changer in your world, where you are. God wants to work in you and through you. And then he's going to call you home. It's never fun to suffer. But in this world of sin and evil, suffering is a fact of life. You don't have to be destroyed by your suffering. God can use your suffering and my suffering to bring out the image of his son and to become saviors for a lost world. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, we ask you to help us in our moments when we find ourselves in despair or discouragement, when we feel beat up by the world around us, when our lives are tainted by the sin of our own life and the lives of others. Lord, in those moments, Father, I pray that we would surrender to your presence, surrender to your power, believe by faith, O oh God, that you are not absent, you are present. You are here with us. You're here with me in my pit, in my cistern, in my hospital bed, in my home, in my brokenness. And Lord, May we surrender to your presence and to your power right now where you are as you're listening to me. Could you, will you surrender your circumstances to God and pray, Lord, your will be done. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, listen, it's going to be a great series. Next weekend, we're going to talk about some of the obstacles that the enemy puts in our way to keep us from being used by God. In particular, we're going to be talking about three kinds of temptation next weekend and how God can help us overcome them for us to realize God's purpose and intention for our lives. Thanks for joining us in this brand new sermon series. And by the way, that story I told you at the beginning is an adaptation from Walter Wangren and his wonderful book called The Book 
of love, the book of life. It's the Bible in a novel. You may want to check it out. God bless you.